0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie talks with Tina and Ryan Maker about their fascination with creativity and creative types, about their online magazine, The Great Discontent, and about why in this day and age, they decided to do a print edition. We'd always wanted to do it, and it seemed like a fun project.
2: And we wanted to see if we
0: could do it.
1: Yep. (laughs) Here's Debbie Melman.
0: From an apartment in southeastern Michigan, on a dead-end road surrounded by fields and the howls of coyotes, Tina and Ryan Esmaker relocated to New York City. They brought with them a passion project, an online magazine that they've been working on in their spare time. In their new home, the wildlife became street life, the howls were replaced by horn blasts, and their magazine also changed from a side gig To a full-time project. This project and the magazine's name, The Great Discontent. The magazine focuses on beginnings, creativity, and risk. They've published over 150 long-form interviews, creating a who's who in the creative world today. They join me now to talk about their partnership, their business, and their publication. Tina and Ryan, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having us. So, Ryan, I understand you got into doing design by recording EPs and designing what you refer to as the cheesy album covers, both for yourself and other bands. So two questions here. What kind of music did you play and what was so cheesy about the covers?
1: They just were really, really bad because I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) <laughs> uh,
0: so what kind of music did you play? Uh,
1: when I was younger, like early teens, it was just kind of like alternative rock. And then band kind of fell apart and just did the solo acoustic thing for a while.
0: What was the band's name?
1: Uh, I won't divulge that information <laughs> in case there's still uh, tracks Google. floating around the internet. never forgets.
0: <laughs> so you did this for yourself and for other local bands? Yeah, not
1: too many other local bands. It was mainly for myself and just some other friends. And that eventually went into like web design stuff. The drummer of my band got me a job as a technical writer at a company that built automation for the big three. So like Ford and GM and stuff like that. We would create manuals for these machines we'd make and we put them on basically a website that we put on a CD-ROM. So that's how I got into web design. And then uh, that's been the focus has been digital for a long time.
0: So you never formally studied?
1: No, it's all self-taught.
0: So you didn't go to school for design. You learned from the drummer in your friend's band, <laughs> and then you start your own company. What gave you the sense that you could do something like that?
1: Well, for me, like doing design and web design stuff was always just a means to an end to be able to continue to do some music stuff. So like the goal was like I wanted to play music, and eventually it just kind of flipped around to where I was doing more design stuff than music.
0: And do so, you still play music on the side?
1: Uh, not as much as I'd like to, No, especially since we moved. It's just been it's been too much going on, but I, I do want to get back to it.
0: So how did you meet Tina, your partner and your wife?
1: We had a group of mutual friends. I mean, Tina's pretty good at explaining the story.
2: So Tina, Tina, tell us. Well, the first time I met Ryan, I thought, he's very handsome, but I think he's shorter than me because I'm really tall. And I'm like, you know, if he's shorter than me, that's just not going to work.
0: And is he shorter than you?
2: Well, that's not really fair because I wear heels usually. So I think we're about the same height. He likes to say he's taller, but...
0: Whoa, so close to destiny going the other direction.
2: (laughs) But no, I mean, he like, I knew he was creative, but he was quieter than me. And once we actually got a chance to like talk and get to know each other, we connected on a lot of different levels. Our first date was on the 4th of July. And then a year later, we got married and began this crazy adventure.
0: And this was all the time living in Michigan. Where in Michigan were you living?
1: Port Huron, Michigan, just kind of uh, northeast of Detroit.
0: Tina, you went to Wayne State University in Detroit, and you worked with runaway and homeless youth as a social worker for 12 years. What made you decide to choose social work as a vocation?
2: I actually started working at an emergency shelter for runaway and homeless youth when I was 18. And I was attending community college, and I had taken a semester off of working, and I saw a posting on a job board one day, and I thought, well, I could work with young people. And I started working there, and I really enjoyed it, and I do love people. I worked there for about six years and studied social work in college, finally earned my degree, and then I worked at the same nonprofit but a different position for another six years, so a total of 12
0: And was there a time in your childhood or your adolescence that you had aspired for a more creative career?
2: Yeah, I think I did. I mean, when I was a really little girl, I drew a lot. I was always singing, drawing, wanting to do something creative. But I think growing up in the Midwest, I didn't have a lot of family or friends who I could look up to who worked creative type jobs. It was very blue collar. And so I did, I started studying fine art in college, and then I just felt like, it wasn't practical. And when I started working at the homeless shelter, I thought, well, I could, you know, do something that's really making a difference in people's lives and hopefully earn a paycheck. Well, it turns out social work doesn't pay very much. <laughs> what do
0: you think is is the biggest thing that you learned about yourself and people in that experience working as a social worker in that kind of environment for so long?
2: Well, I think I'm really intrigued by people's stories as evidenced by the work I do now with The Great Discontent. And I think the biggest takeaway for me during my time in social work is just that everybody has a story and you never know what people are going through. And if you take the time to talk with them and get to know them and and hear their story, it, it makes a big difference rather than assuming and judging.
0: So you meet Ryan at a July 4th party. You're living in Michigan, not working in a particularly creative environment. You have very little creative outlets. And from what I've read, you had talked about doing a creative project together even when you were first dating, but put it off for years and years. In fact, it was five years into your marriage before you started any side creative project. What kept you waiting so long?
1: I mean, we were tired and we weren't really happy doing the things that we were doing individually. And I think that we kind of sabotaged ourselves in a lot of ways. Like, Tina would come home from work and I would have had a long day working on client stuff. Instead of, oh, let's work on something together, it was like, oh, let's go watch a movie or let's sit on the couch and just do whatever because we were both pretty tired. And after several years of doing that, we got to the point where we're like, you can't do this. We need to do something together and we want to work on a project that we're excited about, the both of us are.
2: Ryan,
0: I understand that the book, The War of Art, has really influenced you and has fueled a lot of what you think about creativity. And in one of the interviews that I listened to online, you talk about the notion of sabotaging yourself in relation to your ambitions and your goals. And you talked about how you were sabotaging each other. We were. Mm -hmm. So what were you doing?
1: Say Tina came home and she's like ready to do some painting or whatever. But I had a long day and I don't feel like doing anything creative I'd be like, hey, you know, why, why don't we just watch a movie together tonight or let's just go do something fun. Even though she's feeling that urge to create, I would kind of sabotage that creativity just because I didn't want to do that for the night because I was feeling that resistance and I just gave into it.
0: You quote Stephen Pressfield on The Discontent, I believe in the About section. I think it's a bit of a paraphrase, but you write, rule of thumb, the more important a call or action is to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will feel toward pursuing it. And that's really stuck with me as I was doing my research prior to the show today. I've been mulling that and thinking about how these moments of resistance or fear really tell us quite a lot about what we really want. You know, I don't think we would feel fear about something that we were ultimately indifferent to. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, it's funny that we felt all the resistance toward it and it took us that long to realize that, hey, like, if we're going to get out of this spot or if we want to do something together, we just have to, like, make ourselves do that. And definitely the book was very instrumental
0: I listened to another podcast interview with you, and in one, you quote one of your old professors, and you say, you have to learn to be content in your discontent. Were you feeling discontent at that time in the trajectory of your career? Or were you just feeling an overall sense of malaise about being creative?
1: That was actually a personal mentor that said that to me. And I've always had this drive to create and a, just a perpetual dissatisfaction with all the things that I've worked on are always like wanting more to do more.
0: So you always feel dissatisfied. Yeah. And I think that's, that's Tina's essentially nodding vigorously. <laughs> yeah.
1: And that's kind of essentially where the name The Great Discontent was birthed. And also just out of what he said was being content in your discontent. And at first I was like, What the hell are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make sense. And then after I took some time to think about it, it made a lot of sense because you can't let that feeling of dissatisfaction or discontent keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You have to use that to propel you forward into new things and greater things.
0: So, I know that the great discontent obviously has so many different connotations given this sense of dissatisfaction that you do feel. I was listening to your interview with Chuck Anderson, and he suggested that you might have called the site dynamicinterviews.com. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any other front runners for other names, or was that just always the way it was going to be?
1: We spent a lot of time talking about names, and I don't know where that came from exactly. One of us said it, and it just kind of stuck.
0: Describe your logo for our listeners and tell us some of the backstory about what it's about and why you use it.
1: When we were working on the site, just kind of like really hashed out the concept, it was four years ago. We would stay up, you know, pretty late into the evenings with the windows open. And uh, we'd hear these packs of coyotes going by. And it was like they're our friends in the woods, in some ways taunting us, in other ways just kind of encouraging us. So they just kind of became these companions as we worked on the project.
0: So you wake up one day in, I'm guessing, early 2011, and you're like, okay, let's take that discontent and let's drive it home and you decide to create this online publication. From what I understand, you turned your living room in Michigan into a studio. You sold or gave away your furniture, your television, your PlayStation. <laughs> um, you created workstations for both. And when you were done with your day jobs, you went to work on your own. What was your intention then? What were you hoping to accomplish?
1: Get rid of all the distractions. Yeah. Anything that would kind of keep us from doing that thing that we felt so strongly inside of us.
0: Big, important question. Now that you're living in New York City, do you have a TV now?
1: Yeah. Okay, Mm -hmm. good. Okay.
0: So what made you decide to interview people, other people? What were you hoping to discover in this effort?
2: Well, with my social work background, I had a long history of interviewing people and asking them very difficult questions. You know, again, in Michigan, we were kind of isolated There was no real creative community, and we we wondered if we could connect with creative people who we admired and looked up to, what would we want to ask them? And so we created this list of questions, and then we just started reaching out to people to satisfy our own personal curiosity.
0: In looking at all of the interviews you've done and in looking at the kinds of questions you ask, which I'll get to in a moment, I want to know what made you decide to focus on many of the questions you ask your interviewees on the risks they've taken the leaps the compromises the aha moments the failures the creative acts of courage what made you focus in that realm
1: i think one we've always had a curiosity just about creativity and other people that make things just based on our own bents but i think that list just came out of a desire to like to want to know the answers to those questions you know to like spur ourselves on And then also in the hopes that we'd encourage other people to pursue those things, because we had poured so much in this project and we're like, well, we don't know if people are actually going to read this. We don't know if people will read these 20, 30 minute long interviews on the Internet. But it's something that we believed in and we hope that through it, people will be inspired to do their thing as well. So. I just feel like we wanted to know the answers know, to those I, questions I, really I bad. I I totally so.
0: relate. People ask me all the time, and I say, I'm just a professional nosy body. <laughs> <laughs> so you seem to follow a similar format for each interview, and this is something I'm really interested in talking to you about. You've even described your own questions as generic. So what made you decide to take this approach where you essentially send what looks like initially at least the same list of questions to everybody that you talk to?
2: For me personally, it goes back to when I was doing social work and studying, you know, sociology and anthropology. And it's like we're taking this cross section of creative people and we're studying them and we're finding out how many of them are creatively satisfied or are none of them. Or, you know, how many people are answering this question in this way and this question in that way. I feel also feel like these questions, like there's no end. You could explore them with so many people. And because everyone has a different story and and different origins, you never get the same answer.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the the questions are pretty timeless for the most part. We're not asking, at least not very often, we don't ask specific questions about projects they're working on or things that, you know, will go out of date really fast. So I think that it's helped to keep the project fresh.
0: It's interesting that you say that they're timeless because I do think in a way that they are. But if I had to describe them, I would actually say they're very much of the moment. You don't really ask much about the past. It's really more how did they get to this moment in time and how do they feel about this moment in time. So I feel like it's getting somebody on that specific day to tell you everything about who they are in their life. I'm wondering do you come to the interview with expectations about where you want to go with the interview is there an arc to the way that you craft the asking of the questions or the conversation
2: I think there is sometimes I mean the conversations are very casual we try to do them in person when we can sometimes it's over you know Skype video chat because we're not in the same city but we have a recorder and then we just embark on this conversation and we have questions we want to hit but sometimes we don't hit them all other times things come up during conversation that in our gut we feel like it's important to explore because it might be valuable to our readers so we have like the basic list of questions and then we kind of it's a jumping off point for us
0: And so shortly after publishing your first interview, I believe you were contacted by Nathan at Crush & Lovely. Among many other things, they published the amazing 50 People, One Question. Nathan invited you to come to New York to meet the crew at Crush and see the city. At that point, had you considered living in New York City? Had you thought about moving away from Michigan?
1: We had a list of places that we were thinking about moving to, and we had already started kind of exploring different cities because we knew we wanted to get out of Michigan. New York was on the list, but it was pretty far down. What? Yeah, I mean, we had never been. You know, neither well, of us. This had was been the first visit, visit you had made yeah. when mm-hmm. Nathan
0: invited you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: We fell in love with the city right away. Like I, I feel like as soon as we left the airport and we got to our place in Brooklyn, uh, Nathan met us and started taking us around. I think we we're only here for a few days, but it was just this amazing trip, and like we didn't want to leave. Like we we're in the cab going back to LGA. It sounds cheesy to say this, but our hearts kind of sunk Like as we left. It was like, no, I don't want to go. Um, it's a hard city to leave. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so a few months later, Crush offered you a job. Yep. And you both moved from Michigan to Manhattan. Now, did they offer you both jobs at the same time, or was it like, buy one, get one free? Tell me how, how you both got here and what you were doing.
1: I started working with Crush remotely in Michigan for the first couple months, and then... We moved in, I want to say it was April.
2: On April Fool's Day. Yeah. <laughs> we drove a moving truck from Michigan to New York with our cat and his carrier in between our seats.
0: Now, that must have been a trip that you will never forget for the rest of your lives.
2: Never. No. It's like it's the
0: best moment. It's like the beginning of everything when you do something like that.
1: Yeah, I was scared to death to drive a 16 foot Penske truck through Manhattan. But it was like, once I did that, I was like, I can do anything. <laughs>
0: But yet, by 2013, you were starting to feel that great discontent sort of bubble up. I read that you couldn't shake the feeling that you needed to give the great discontent a chance. You were asking yourselves, could this project support us? Would the advertisers and community back it? At this point, you're about a year and a half into weekly posts. So what made you decide to go for it?
1: I think we're still trying to figure it out. Um, it's just, it's an exciting adventure and we're right in the middle of it, but it feels right. And it's exciting. And it's something that we've wanted to do for a really long time. And it was just too much to balance, you know, doing the day job stuff and this project, which increasingly became a lot more intense.
0: And so in a day and age when almost every major publication is going online and and many are ceasing analog publication, what made you decide to go the other direction, go from an online publication to this gorgeous book of a magazine?
1: We'd always wanted to do it, and it seemed like a fun project.
0: And we wanted to see if we could do it. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So let's talk about the Kickstarter, because it was a remarkable and very public journey that you took. So you wrote an encapsulation of the experience, which was really harrowing. Even rereading it gave me sort of a sense of just apprehension that I I couldn't get away from. So you stated the following. Our campaign started out very strong. The interwebs were abuzz with the news that the great discontent was going to print. Plus, we paired the campaign kickoff with the announcement that Tina and I were going out on our own. Everything was looking up, and 72 hours in, we had already reached 33% of our goal. We felt like we were going to glide to a funded campaign in no time but after about a week, it plateaued. The next two and a half weeks are what I like to refer to as our Kickstarter Desert Walk. And you go on to state... Honestly, from the midpoint of the campaign up until the last day, we didn't think we were going to meet our $100,000 goal. And it wasn't for lack of trying. We worked every angle we could think of, exhausting ourselves in the process. On the last day, I woke and immediately opened Twitter on my phone. Opinions were split 50-50 about our campaign. Some said it looked like we weren't going to make it, while others were encouraging friends to back it because it had to get funded. So what happened then?
1: (laughs) I woke up, as you said, and uh, read through Twitter. And uh, I think hearing people, like, encourage their friends, be like, hey, guys, this has to happen. Like, you should give money to this Kickstarter. It just gave us the kick in the pants that we needed. And I remember lying in bed and kind of, I think Tina had woken up by then. And I'm like, hey, babe, you want to try to give this one last shot to see if we can do it? She's like, yeah, sure, let's do it.
0: Were you down? Were you depressed? Were you feeling like, oh, my God, the whole world is watching and we're failing?
1: Yeah, I mean, we had already, like like I said, in that Medium post, both of us had kind of given up on it because mm-hmm. it just it really plateaued. And it was, you know, we needed to raise upwards of $50,000 in the middle of the campaign. And people kind of had stopped sharing about it for the most part. So I know it was kind of goofy saying that you go through like the stages of grief, but it was like kind of like that because we had put we had invested so much in this project. That to think in the middle of it that this wasn't going to happen was like, oh, man, you know, it's kind of a bummer. So we kind of gone through the whole different stages. You're like, oh, the denial stage and then just anger, anger, resentment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the the last day was just a last ditch effort. It was like, well, let's see if we can kind of make history and see if people really want this to happen, which is what happened. What happened?
0: (laughs) Well. You ultimately raised over $105,000 and subsequently released the printed version of The Great Discontent. And as I've said, it's stunning. Designed by Frank Camaro, it is 9 by 12 inches and 272 thick matte pages. The interviews in the issue are themed around leaps You describe it as essential but scary things we must take as creatives to propel our work and careers forward. And I'd like to quote artist El Luna from her interview. She says, I believe that if you step into uncharted territory, you are also stepping into total abandonment, potential humiliation, and a space where nothing is guaranteed. There is no case study or roadmap. I have so much respect for anyone who will step away from what they can do in order to find what they must do. Was that what it felt like for you?
2: You just described the last year of our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she did. (laughs) Um, You talk
0: so much and you seem so fascinated by the courage that it takes to take these leaps. I just want to get a sense of what fueled that in yourselves.
2: I think I'm fascinated with people who take risks because I put off taking risks for a very long time and I tried to be very safe and it just wasn't working for me. And I think after talking to enough people about the risks they'd taken and kind of reframing it and realizing that, you know, it's kind of like you only have one life. And what at the end of my for? life, yeah, I want to look back and say that I at least tried, even if I fell flat on my face. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's where my fascination with it comes from.
0: Do you feel like there is any way to get around the courage thing? Is there a right time to start something?
2: I don't think so. Yeah. I will say that I had a mentor several years ago that I had a, a really important conversation with her, and she basically said, it sounds maybe it sounds silly, but she said, run to the roar. You know, it's like when you are thinking about doing something and it feels really scary. It feels like there's this big lion waiting at the finish line and he's roaring and he's like so like voracious and he's hungry and he's going to eat you or tear you apart. You're afraid of that thing, but you should just run toward it anyway, because when you get there, it's not going to be as big and scary as you think it actually is. And I found that to be true in my own life. Like If I don't think about it as much and I actually just take a risk and do it, when I get to the finish line, I realize that It wasn't as big and scary as I thought, or maybe it was, or maybe things don't turn out as well as I had hoped, but there's always a lesson in there. And so I just choose to embrace the lesson and, and move on to the next thing.
0: For our listeners that are sitting on their own precipice of making a move, what took you as long as it did to actually act on that audacity?
2: I think maybe just the idea that there's a right time and that we were waiting for it. But it never happened, and time goes by so fast. And before we knew it, five years into our marriage, we hadn't done anything that we had talked about wanting to do creatively.
1: I think for a long time we did put off a lot of stuff thinking that we'd have more time in the future. And that's become less of the case. Like, the older you get, the more you realize that you don't have that much time. And the best time is just right now. So I think we've gotten to the point where now we don't wait quite as long to make these decisions. It's more of, like, a crazy hey, let's do this kind of decision. Like, the magazine was kind of that way. It was something that was brewing for a long time, but when it came down to actually doing it, it was like, this sounds like a good idea. We really wanted to do it for a long time, so let's just do it and see, you know, what would happen.
0: Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> now, the $105,000 you raised was really not all that much. You outline all of the expenses you had, and it was just barely enough to put a magazine of this size together. For example, you spent over $43,000 on printing, about $18,000 on fulfillment and shipping. You had to pay for design. There were costs for video, photography, travel, font licensing, a wide-format office printer, ink for proofing, and other Incidentals, Did you lose money on, on this publication?
1: Uh, no, we haven't lost money. I mean, we haven't necessarily paid ourselves like we wanted to out of the project. That was the goal with the Kickstarter was like we hoped we would raise more than what um, we were asking for so that we could kind of pay ourselves the time that we had spent on it. But haven't really been able to pay ourselves a lot out of the magazine stuff. It's just been an investment back into the project. But no, it hasn't lost money.
0: And when can we expect issue number two?
1: January. Yeah, we're Ooh. working on it now. We're working on it
0: right now. Wonderful. But you didn't do another Kickstarter for it. Nope. And so you've raised the funds privately. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, what advice can you share for our listeners, either starting a new business or thinking about launching their own Kickstarter? Anything that you can, any words of wisdom you can provide?
2: I have a lot of advice, and I, I don't know how to sum it up in a couple sentences. But if you are going to run a Kickstarter... I'll just say it's not for the faint of heart. It's an emotional roller coaster and you're very invested in your project and it becomes a full-time job to manage it and just be really sure that you want to do it and that you need to do it before you embark on that.
1: And I definitely do as much research as possible as far as like how much everything is going to cost, especially like the fulfillment side of things and shipping because that's something we did wind up losing money on was the international shipping. But definitely charge what... You know, if you're giving somebody a product, you should be charging what you need to for it. And the same thing goes for shipping.
0: So you recently redesigned the Great Discontent site. Before, when you went to the Great Discontent, it felt a little bit more isolated in that you'd go to read the interview and it didn't seem like an easy way to get to the one before, or the one next. Whereas now there seems to be more of a sense of continuity that you could easily access all of the other content.
1: Yeah, that was very intentional and something that, you know, I'd wanted to do a long time ago, but because it was a side project, we launched it very bare bones and minimum. And a lot of the design decisions that I made were because I just had to keep stripping everything back so that we could publish it. But yeah, that before it was like a bunch of islands and it wasn't very easy to kind of go from one article to the next and changing that up now with the new site, it was very intentional to kind of like take people on a journey through the site because, If you read the current interview that's up right now, there are other interviews on the site that are very much related to that or something else that will inspire you to uh, take those risks and leaps and whatnot.
0: You recently launched Wayward Wild, which is your brand new studio creating and publishing original content for print, film, and the web. And you're joined by Brad Smith, who is the founder and former CEO of Verb. It seems like you have very ambitious plans for 2015. How are you doing all of this, just the three of you? How are you creating this this monolith?
2: We're multitasking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, we're really excited about this. But we've known for a long time that we could only take the great discontent so far. Both of us have been wearing so many hats over the years. And one of the biggest things with me has been having to handle a lot of the business stuff on top of all the creative stuff. So I have to kind of like switch mindsets on a regular basis, and that's always been a really hard thing for me to do. I knew I've always needed someone that can be like that business partner that can help build a brand in general and get the right kind of strategic partnerships with sponsors and advertisers and whatnot.
0: So what do you foresee? It's a year from now. What is the Great Discontent brand in Wayward Wild accomplished?
1: Well, first off... We're going to do four issues of The Great Discontent this next year. So instead of doing a biannual publication, it's going to be four issues. So it won't be quite as many pages each time, but it's still going to be the same format. Uh, so we'll do a lot more in print. We're going to continue to expand the website, start to do podcasts and more film stuff. Hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have branched out into being much more of a bigger publication. Hopefully have some people on staff and... Uh, be able to focus on the things that, you know, the three of us are really good at.
0: I have one last question for you both. Are you scared? Of course. A little bit. But it's not going to stop you? Mm-mm. no <laughs> thank you Tina thank you Ryan you can find out more about Tina and Ryan's magazine and read all of their marvelous interviews on The Great Discontent go to greatdiscontent.com I'd like to thank you for listening and remember we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference or we can do both I'm Debbie Melman and I look forward to talking with you again soon
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Master's in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Raina Artika. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.